Well, if you joined us last week, you would recall that the primary emphasis of this short letter is that walking in truth and love means embracing Christ and his people and withdrawing our aid and encouragement to those who teach falsehood. Walking in truth and love means embracing Christ and his people and withdrawing our aid and encouragement from those who teach falsehood. That's the main idea of this book. And because I didn't think it was possible to break it down into one sermon or to comprise it into one sermon, I broke it down into two. And last week, picking up on John's emphasis on the word truth that is used five times in this letter, we explored this idea of what it means to walk in the truth and how that relates to us embracing Christ and his people. And in order to appreciate the context of this book, we kind of unfolded what was happening at the time. And we explored a little bit what this heresy that was going on at the time of John's writing of this letter was, this docetous heresy as we spoke about. And from a casual reading of the text, we saw that John's emphasis was warning this little church that they need to walk in the truth. They need to avoid the heretical views of these false teachers and continue in the teaching that they had originally received from the apostles. As we consider the sketch of these false teachers, we briefly highlighted some sobering realities. One was these false teachers previously knew the truth. John wrote and said that they went on ahead, that there were those who were previously of us, but they did not continue of us. They went on. These were the people who knew the truth, and that was sobering to consider. There is a sense in which you can know conceptually the teachings of Christ, but never have any root of faith in you. That was one thing. The second thing is most commentators agreed that the going on ahead that John describes these false teachers as related to some special knowledge that they had, some special knowledge that they accumulated and claimed for themselves such that they thought that the teaching they had originally received wasn't enough and they needed to move on to something else. He unequivocally claims that such people do not have God. If you go on ahead from what was originally taught to you in the gospel, you don't get more of God. In fact, you get less. You are one who does not have God. You don't have a relationship with God. Those are the three things that we saw about those false teachers. And by way of application, we noted that you should not call everything a heresy that is an error. That was the first application we saw. John speaks directly to this idea that if you believe that Jesus came here as God, but only came here not in the form of flesh, in the form of a man, but merely appeared to be a man as the docetists taught, that you have departed from the faith. You are outside of the realm of orthodoxy. And the first point of application is we shouldn't call everything heresy. Just because a brother of yours doesn't believe that the Nephilim, you know, are spirit babies, it doesn't mean that he's a heretic, for instance. That's useful because we know that we can undermine the faith and encouragement of brothers by calling them something that they truly are not, that the scripture doesn't describe them as. So we need to be careful 
in our judgments. So that was the first point of application. The second was more directly related to the text, and it related to uh, this idea that beliefs matter and are of eternal significance. And so we need to be on guard about what we believe. We need to hold fast to those foundational teachings that we originally received. And particularly because we are working off of and benefiting from the labor of others. There are those who have labored so that you can win a reward. And we ought not to undermine, we ought not to disregard the labor, the fruit of the labor that those people have earnestly tarried in order to undertake on our behalf. So those were two applications. And as I said, I was purposely avoiding some material in the text because I knew that we had to go on this week to look at the second part of our study. Today we're going to be focusing on a second word that has heavy prominence in this letter. We looked last week at the word truth, but there is another word in this epistle that features with almost as much prominence as the word truth. It's the word love. Truth is used five times, but love is used four times in this letter. So it's pretty obvious that John is seeking to communicate and encourage these believers to love one another, as we read here in verses four to six. Though, though we addressed last week the theological threat to the church's walk in the truth, we also have to consider that there was a concomitant or associated threat to the church's walk in love. Not only did these false teachers threaten this local's assembly, adherence to the faithfulness of the gospel message, but John also highlights to us that the, there is also a threat to their expression of love. Their expressions of love must also be in accordance with the truth. In fact, in this specific circumstance, John says that the two are inextricable and can't be separated. It's necessary to hold truth and love together. Just to comment quickly on these two concepts, you see that John begins this letter by highlighting that he loves these believers in the truth. And not only him, but all who know the truth. And the reason he loves these believers is because of the truth. The truth of the gospel is foundational to our expression of love towards other believers. It's the gospel that motivates and provokes our love for other believers. It's because Christ died for this brother. It's because Christ shed his blood for a new sister that I am bid, I am commanded, I am instructed to love you as well, to show the love of Christ to you. The gospel of Christ informs and inflames our love. And it is the standard and the basis upon which we love others. We love others because of the truth of this gospel. As we looked at last week, the truth that John refers to here is the truth of the gospel. But just as we are to walk in the limits of the truths of the gospel and observe that as we walk in the truth, there are boundaries that we must not exceed as we walk in love. And that will be the emphasis of our time this morning. We will look specifically, as I said last week, at what it means to withdraw aid and encouragement from those who teach false doctrine.
Now, as we begin our study, it's important that we again, like our friends in Superbook, transport ourselves back in time to this current cultural context so that we appreciate the concepts that are unfolded here. Sometimes this is helpful because many times the culture of yesteryear is much different than the culture of today. I mean, I would say that the culture that my mother lived in is far different than the culture I live in today. How much more the culture of 2,000 years ago? So I think it's helpful for our understanding of the text. And this morning, I want to highlight to you what was going on at the time with respect to persons traveling around and the requirement to show hospitality and the necessity to show hospitality at that time and what it means. So, first things first, notice with me that at the time of John's writing, that a key component of traveling as a stranger, because people didn't have internet and there was no passports and any international protocols and so on, a key component of traveling was that you had to have someone in the community in which you were traveling who would embrace you so that you, your status would be transferred from that of a stranger to that community to one as a guest or a neighbor. That was a key component of travel in the Near Eastern world because there was naturally a lot of skepticism and suspicion around random people coming around the village. As you can imagine, just using our sanctified minds, like, what if they're a spy? Like, what if they're coming to do us harm? Like, a whole lot of what ifs could arise because this person is traveling around and like, no one knows what's up with them. In order to help uh, as well with shelter and safety and the provision of food, Persons needed to have someone who would vouch for them in that community. You needed to have someone who was willing to take you in so that you could be sheltered from the elements, so that you could get uh, food to nourish yourself, and so that you would be safe from people who may want to rob you or do whatever. That was a necessary element of travel in the Near Eastern world. You couldn't get away from it. If you did that, it was at your own peril, and you would have to know that you're doing a foolhardy mission trip. That, that was the reality at that time. But we have to notice that at the bottom of what the stranger needed in John's context was to be considered a part of the community or to be viewed as part of the community by virtue of his relationship with the persons who had taken them in. That's what hospitality afforded you when you went to another town, so that people didn't look at you with suspicion, so that they didn't look at you with uh, skepticism and think that you were a threat. That's primarily what hospitality allowed you to do. If we were to read the book of 3 John, which makes actually a positive case for hospitality, our, our text this morning makes a negative case for hospitality, you would see that it reads, as, as John is writing to Gaius, it reads that it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I just highlight that for you so that you can know that it was the practice of Christians at the time as well to extend hospitality. This was the normative practice of Christians, especially as it related to itinerant ministers of the gospel. An itinerant minister is someone who travels from place to place in the practice of their profession. So as a preacher of the gospel, I need some place to stay, I need food, I need shelter. But I also need some place that I would be able to be embraced by this community and not be viewed as a threat. Otherwise, people would probably view me with much suspicion, much skepticism. So these people that traveled in, th in Third John, they were considered strangers, yet they were brothers. The people who they stayed with didn't know them, didn't know them from Adam. But because they were believers, because they went around preaching the gospel, they were known as brothers. They communicated and it was shared that they had a common faith, a common unity in the gospel. And so these Christians stayed by other Christians in tongues in order to share the gospel. So I just highlight that to you so that you would see that there's this practice of hospitality that's going on. Christians are doing it. It's a common practice in the Near Eastern world. And those who are hosting are doing so so that the strangers who are coming into these communities would be received by the communities and not suffer undue hardship by not being able to have shelter, food, and so on. In the context of this letter that we're looking at, that is precisely what the false teachers sought to do as well. They sought to leverage the hospitality, the niceness, the receptivity of the Christians living in this community. They wanted, as we see highlighted in the text here, they wanted to come and use their the base of these Christians, their homes, in order to spread their false messages. They didn't stay in their own quarters, as we see in uh, verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, but they've come and have now arrived at the Christians' doorsteps. And they're saying, please, let me in. Give me some food. Give me some shelter. Take me in so I'm received by the community, so that I can do my work of spreading this message. They wanted the lodging of Christians so that they could promote their false teachers. And that is what is brought to the fore in verses 10 and 11, and that's at the center of our study today. John's words in response to this circumstance are emphatic, sharp, and pointed. He says that such people don't belong in your houses and don't even deserve a greeting. This is hard language. Is the apostle of love saying that if a band of traveling missionaries who are preaching about Jesus in a different way, if they come at your doorstep tired, weary from their miles and miles of journey, and want to seek lodging at your house, is he saying that you should reject them? I would say yes. That's, that's the clear... That's the clear teaching of the scripture here. If he is coming to your house, if he comes and does not bring this teaching, meaning the teaching of the true gospel, and obviously another one, if he comes and brings another teaching 
and wants to spread that teaching, do not receive him into your house. There's no cryptic message here. We ought to recognize that uh, the principal operative here, though, isn't simply limited to your home. Would it be okay for John's hearers to use their donkeys to allow the false teachers to go from one end of the community to the other in the process of their sharing this false teaching? Of course not. That's, that's clear. Would it, would it be fine for them to provide them with materials, papyri and ink, perhaps, in order for them to leave copies of their false teaching around the community? Obvi obviously not. The teaching here extends the principle that underlies John's instruction to not receive them into your home is broader than simply providing them with a place to stay. We could look at it as using your resources in order to aid these false teachers. Using your resources to aid them is out of bounds. That's the point that John is getting at here with this instruction, verse 10 and 11. But that's looking at the command to not bring them into your house. What about this command to not give them a greeting? Is John saying here that we ought to be rude to these false teachers? Is he saying that we, when we're walking down the road that we should change our smiling face to a skull whenever they pass? Is that the sense of, of what he's saying? I, I don't think so. I, some good-natured brothers have taken this expression literally. Some people take this to mean, John is literally saying in a one-to-one -one way, if, a, if you know a false teacher is coming around, like say a JW comes to your house, don't even say hello. Literally, close your door, stay behind it, and ignore them. Some people have used that as a justification, and some good-natured good brothers within the Reformed community, I might add, have, have taken that view. Uh, but I think such a reading may not be suitable in this context. There are some things we should agree on that in scripture we don't adopt in the most literal one-to-one -one way. For example, we don't assume that when Jesus said in Matthew 23 that we shouldn't call anyone a teacher or instructor or father because we're all brothers, that I shouldn't go about calling my dad father, that I should go about calling him Winfield. That would obviously get me ignored and the ire of my father, but that's not how we should interpret it. Like, obviously, we don't mean that little kids can't call their teacher's teacher and people who are doing lectures in their later years can't call their teacher's instructors. And, like, that's, that's not the context. And I think the same cultural nuance should be appreciated here. There are other interpretive issues that are at play that we need to kind of unfold and explicate. If any of you have the King James Version of the Bible, you may notice that the word greeting here has been translated Godspeed. Now whether or not that's a good literal translation, I think it actually gives a very good idea of what is meant. In the Greek, the word for greeting means to be favorably disposed towards, or leaning towards, or delighting in, or rejoicing in. So what we ought to take from this is that there are ways of communicating, ways of interacting with others that give the sense that you have some favorable disposition towards them, some common purpose that you are enjoining yourself 
interact with them in when you give them a greeting. And the common word for that in the time, obviously, when the King James Version of the Bible was being collated and uh, translated, the common word for that in that time was Godspeed. Godspeed communicates something of the sense that you wish the person favored in what they're going about to do. You wish the person success in what they're going about to do. That's what Godspeed communicates. If they were going on a mission trip in Africa or something, or some remote part of the world, you would wish them well on their endeavors. That's, that's the sense of it. And I think you can see my point. It, it seems clearer from the text that we should interpret this as a cultural way of politely welcoming someone such that they recognize that you are being supportive of them and their mission and the work that they are doing. That's, I think, closer to the point, and it makes sense of also the use of the word of hospitality in this context, going from a stranger to someone who's recognized and someone who's supported by the community. In the same light as you granting hospitality and that conveying to the entire community that you support this person, this person is not a threat to the community, but in fact, just as you view me, and I'm not a threat, I'm here, you should view them by proxy because I'm kind of vouching for them. In the same way, there are cultural ways of communicating to others that you support them, that they have a common purpose with you. There are cultural ways of expressing that. There are certainly ways that we slap one another and say, right on. There are certainly other ways that we use within the community that suggest that we want you to do well in whatever you're doing. So I think, I think that's, how, that's more a sense of how we should take the word, do not give them a greeting. It being a way of communicating in friendly terms that you recognize the person and you're supportive of what they're doing. So something like Godspeed, I think is pretty accurate here. The rationale for this command is simple. As we see in verse 11, to provide any assistant to, assistance to or encouragement of these false teachers in their wicked works is to become complicit with them. In the words of legal jargon, you're aiding and abetting a criminal. It's the same thing when the people who housed Winston Hall many years ago, when he escaped from, the, uh, from prison and he was supposed to be in jail for many years, they aided and abetted him in his crime. They allowed him to be free of the consequences of his crime. That's, the, that's what John is getting around here when he's getting onto here when he's saying that someone who does this, who grants persons their resources so they can spread false teaching, or who expresses an idea that means that they are supportive of what they're doing, they are participants in their wicked works. They're, in, in the Greek, it's more like they have a share in their fellowship. The Greek word here is konoia. They have a share in what they're doing, a share in their efforts. In other words, to have the banner of Christ over you while you're giving aid or encouragement to a false teacher is a great act of treachery. Tev reminded me this week as we were talking about this that we're in spiritual battle. 
And if we can use battle terms here, like though Molotov cocktails aren't being thrown around and ammunition isn't being spent on the floor and uh, though you know people aren't physically dying and so on, can you imagine as you are in an actual physical war, you've done lost two of your fingers, you have been going through the throes of death. And spiritually speaking, you're dealing with the world of flesh and the devil, and a brother is out there making soup for the enemy. When you think about it that way, when you think about the act of treachery that's going on, it's of the worst human sort. There is a treachery that goes on that, humanly speaking, is extremely discouraging. When we see others compromise within the Christian faith, to worldly ideologies, we cringe inwardly. It pains us and makes us sick to the stomach. We think, how could a Christian agree with that? How could a Christian help that person do their wicked works? How could, how could they do that? We feel personally assailed. To partner with those who are false teachers is to be complicit in their wicked works. And so John warns them, don't use your resources to give them aid. Don't use your words to give them encouragement. That's the sense of what we have here in the text. That's what John is telling us here in verses 10 and 11 and the force of his command. Do not participate in their wicked works. That's what you do when you give your resources or you give your encouragement to false teachers. But that's what the book of uh, Second John is about. There, is, there was false teaching going on here. These false teachers wanted to come and use person's home as basis for spreading their deadly lies. And in this context, John is trying to ward off threats to the, this local church's walk in truth. But also he wants to ward off threats to this local church's walk in love. He reminds us that walking in truth and love is coterminous. As Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. And so he calls for them to walk in love that accords with the truth. You can't go about walking in love at the expense of truth. Christians have this, uh, what I should call, this 11th commandment that's ingrained in the law called thou shalt be nice. And Everywhere you go, you have to be tolerant, you have to be patient, but there are some things in the scripture that we're called to be intolerant of. Yeah. Like if you stand for nothing, like what, what exactly are you standing for? What exactly are you standing on? Amen. So there are things that we're called to stand on the truth for. And if we, in the exercise or in, under the banner of love, give aid and encouragement to those who are doing wickedness, we're participants with them. We're aiding and abetting them. We're joining with them in a common purpose against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and against the brothers themselves. This is a hard pill to swallow, particularly because Christians love to be hospitable. At the center of hospitality is the fact that God, the second person of the Trinity, has come down in bodily form 
to make his home with us. We love to convey the truth of that message. We love to show that Christ Jesus, very God of very God, who has condescended and has become a man, forevermore uniting divinity with manhood in the person of Jesus Christ, has invited unworthy sinners to come and feast at his table. We love to invite others to share in that blessing as we do the work of Christ, to call sinners into our homes to show them that God loves sinners, that truly, that they can have a seat in our homes because Christ went around being friends with sinners. We love to be friends with sinners and invite them home to show that those who are unworthy can indeed be invited to the feast, that the lowly of the lowly, the weary, the lonely, can can find respite, can find grace. And in the words of Rosaria Butterfield, can find our homes as hospitals and incubators of grace. We love to convey that message. And I know especially that that resonates with the homemakers as well. But there are times that we must keep our doors shut for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. As we originally said, there are boundaries to our expression of love. Indeed, there are inappropriate ways to express love because we have a greater allegiance to Christ himself and to the family of God. Not only that, but we have to remember that we are indeed in a spiritual war, a spiritual battle, and to not pick up our weapons in this battle is to also be complicit with the enemy. Not saying that we pick up our weapons to destroy the enemy with guns and so on. We'll sing later on, not with uh, swords loud clashing. Like the weapons of our warfare aren't to try to stick our leg out when the Jehovah Witness is going down, when he's on his trip to go and peddle foolishness. That's not the type of war we're in. We're called to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We are called to not give aid and encouragement to those who are going around spreading their wicked words. I agree completely with commentator Albert Barnes who says that this command does not mean that no acts of kindness in any circumstances were to be shown to such persons. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. So there are ways, appropriate ways, that we can engage and interact with false teachers, like telling them the gospel, for instance, (laughs) telling them to repent of their wicked works, for instance. There are appropriate ways that we can interact with false teachers, but nothing should be construed as encouraging or countenancing, to quote Barnes, that these people are true teachers of religion. Nothing in our dealings with them should be construed in that way. With that in mind, how do we apply this to our modern lives? Maybe as we seek to do applications, some scenarios or examples may be helpful. Consider a scenario where your friend Jim, who is an ardent Mormon, for instance, an ardent Mormon, is about to come in for the annual Mormon convention. You know Jim is a heretic because you and Jim are friends. You've told him about his heresy. You've tried to encourage him in the true gospel, but he's still a Mormon, so obviously he doesn't believe that. But one day Jim has this terrible predicament. The day before the conference, he says that his Airbnb has fallen through and there's nowhere he can stay. He doesn't know anyone else in that place. 
and so he wants to stay with you. His flight is booked. He's coming in the middle of tourist season. He has nowhere else to go. Applying second John means that you have to tell Jim you can't help him. You can't help him. You can't help Jim. You can't help Jim. Maybe if he were coming for vacation, sure. Business trip, no problem. But serious reckoning with this text means that there's almost a one-to-one -one correspondence with what's going on here. Jim is coming to celebrate foreign deities at a conference. Yep. He's coming to worship them. He's coming to promulgate that foolishness at a conference. Yep. Your granting of resources to him by giving him house, shelter, you know, food and so on is in contravention with this text that we have here. But what about more broadly? Say if Arasta is carrying speakers on his back and he wants to go to Temple Yard so that he can smoke ganja and raise praise to the Most High Selassie. Obviously, that's out of bounds. Like we, we can't use our car, our truck, or whatever to help him. We have to tell him, no, no, we, we can't help you do that. And in fact, one of the ways that I can help you is to tell you that you shouldn't do that. What, that's, that's one of the ways that we can apply this passage. But that's more about using our resources such as our homes, our cars, and so on to help others. What about the command to not give people a greeting? And this is something that I, myself and a brother have struggled with. Who do you go about calling brother? is a serious, serious, serious thing when you think about it. Yeah. What are you communicating when you go about calling someone a brother? Do you call Jehovah Witnesses brothers? Do you call preachers of the prosperity gospel brothers? Do you call those the family of God who have been preaching about Selassie? Do you say brethren to the Rasta going down the road? There are cultural ways that we can convey that we have a common purpose, that we share a common front with those who are anti-Christ, as, as the Apostle John would say. There are ways in which we can support, there are ways in which we can encourage others, there are ways in which we can bid others Godspeed in our dealings with them. And we need to be concerned about that. We need to be concerned about how we use our speech and encouragement, how we love on other people. There are inappropriate ways to do that. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to be concerned because, especially in Barbados, where multi-faith practices are unfortunately on the rise, where they're being televised, where the Muslim, the Anglican, and the Pentecostal are all staring the stage and all praying to God, we need to be concerned that we're not partnering with these people, giving aid to them, or giving encouragement to them in ways that would contravene what John is saying in this book. We shouldn't give false teachers or those outside of the, the faith the sense that they share a common kinship and a common purpose and 
when I'm saying those outside the faith, I'm speaking more so about those outside the faith who are promoting, those outside the faith who are uh, trying to explicate and unfold for us a false ideology, a false teaching that is against the Christian gospel. Unfortunately, even in our day, there are uh, evangelistic atheists. As strange as that may seem, because that worldview is bankrupt, there are those who go around saying, you know, well, you know, believe that there's no God and go around trying to encourage people to do that. We shouldn't lend our aid to them and look at them and say, well, you're so zealous in your efforts. I just love your work ethic. Like, that's, that's completely out of bounds. In the same way, it would be extremely awkward and a slap in the face of every soldier among the Allied forces in 1944 to hear their fellow soldier calling out to an enemy as comrade, how can I help you? In those same ways, we ought to avoid using terms like brother, Godspeed, encouraging others as though they share a common purpose or we are supporting them. Our love must be discerning and discriminating to maintain gospel unity and gospel clarity. In the age of tolerance, failing to extend to anyone the same privileges that you would extend to someone in the church is viewed as a cardinal sin, is viewed as the height of arrogance and incivility. But our love for persons who are heretics and false teachers, and of course known to be so, must be discerning and discriminating. We spoke about Christian unity last week being founded upon the truths of the gospel. It's not something that's spiritual or mental. There is a visible expression to Christian unity. There's a visible expression, which means that you can't share the stage with a Muslim when the prime minister calls him to go and pray for the nation. There's a visible expression to Christian unity. That person who's partnering with the Muslims has made a break with the Christian faith. That person is standing against his brothers who say that you know, Allah is not a true God and that is a worship of demons or something. Those persons are going against this command to walk in the truth and walk in love. We see Sunday by Sunday as we gather for worship and we'll do later on as we celebrate communion that we gather around this common truth that Christ has poured out his blood for the sake of sins. Yes. We gather around that common truth that he has shed his blood and that I am supposed to love you because Christ died for you. There's a visible expression of unity as we approach the communion table. But that visible expression of unity doesn't just extend or isn't just localized within this local church on Sundays. That expression of unity is visible even in how we express ourselves with people who teach false doctrine and encourage them, or in this case, how we discourage them. Friends, we have joined in a very real sense an exclusive club. And it shouldn't surprise us that as we band together as brothers and sisters to love one another as John commands by using our homes and by extension our resources and even our words to show that we are not aiding and abetting heretics, that we ought to do so with a sense of joy, a sense of zeal, 
and a sense that we are doing this for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Finally, we need to see these as opportunities and ways, not that we can wound the enemies of Christ, but ways that we can appeal to them and show them that they are indeed estranged from Jesus and from his people. We need to use those opportunities where we discourage people and, show, and tell them, no, we can't participate with you. We need to use these as opportunities of rebukes to those ideologies such that hopefully we don't hack the people to pieces, but with the scaffold of the gospel, we're able to direct them and show them that Christ Jesus is indeed the true God, the one who lives forever, and the one who is willing and able to save them from their sins. We need to not see the passage in Second John as a way to shirk away from the world, but a way to meaningfully engage with the world as we go about our Christian lives. We ought to take the same view of as God, who does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they may turn and live. As we stand together, united around the gospel, let's embrace this calling to be discerning and discriminating with our love, as providentially we are called to do in our walk and in our ministry. Nothing less than that is required of us as we strive to walk in both truth and walk in love. That's what we're called to do, and let's strive to do 